This is episode 472 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. One of the most frightening truths in the Christian life is the fact that many who claim the name of Christ, who profess salvation, are actually lost and on their way to eternal separation from God. I mean, how can that be? How can someone be so duped into believing they are saved when in fact just the opposite is true? The answer is found in our understanding of the difference between regeneration, which is being born again, a supernatural act of God, and conversion, which is a human act where we exercise faith and repentance. Conversion must follow regeneration for true salvation to take place. If the order is reversed, nothing eternal happens. Often, with good intentions, we focus on getting someone to convert to Christ by emphasizing their need to recite what we call the sinner's prayer, which focuses pretty much on faith and repentance. But without regeneration, being born again, the converted individual who prayed the prayer is not saved. They may have made a verbal assent to a code of ethics or religion or a way of life, but without a supernatural change in nature, nothing happens. And sadly, the converted yet unregenerate sinner becomes another unsaved, baptized, deceived church member. So what are we to do? That's exactly what we're going to talk about today. So let's jump right in and learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We've been talking now for months about what it takes to live as a Christian during the times in which we're facing right now. We talked about, for example, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you were to Google that, how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, there'll be a whole bunch of websites from Campus Crusade from Christ, or it's called Crew Now, or or many other ministries which will tell you how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, yet each of these will have a foundation that has to be met first. Or how do we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? And if you wanted to Google that or try to figure that out or look in Scripture and see how that's done, there's a foundation that first must be met before you can take anything captive to the obedience of Christ. Romans 12, how do I offer myself as a living sacrifice? How do I walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh? How do I overcome evil with good? How do I stand in the day of battle from Ephesians chapter 6. How do I live by faith? As a matter of fact, I meant to bring one today, um, one of those steps to freedom in Christ that most of you have gone through, these seven steps to freedom in Christ. In the very beginning of those seven steps, there is a foundation that must be met. None of the other things can happen unless this foundation is met. And that foundation can be found in what I'm going to show you in just a moment. I do not want you to take this lightly. I do not want you to assume uh, anything here. I want you to pay attention and be convicted or encouraged by his word to see exactly what it says. None of the spiritual exercises, none of the spiritual blessings we're asking from the Lord, none of the song that we sang today, not being overcome by a spirit of fear, not having a spirit of fear, none of that can happen without a foundation. And that foundation is found in him. The foundation is found in a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, not a knowledge of him, but a saving knowledge. Let me, uh, let me share this one verse with you, or these two verses with you that obviously we've looked at many, many times before. And it's part of a chain of salvation. It's part of what God does during this time. And what's left out is, of course, what we do. And here's what it says. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And this statement begins by talking about for those who are the called according to his purpose. The rest of this verse here tries to amplify what it means to be the called, definitive article called, not just someone who's called, but the special called ones. For whom he foreknew, for whom he placed his favor upon beforehand, is what the word means, he pre-had favor with, pre-gnosko. He predestined. To predestine is to determine the outcome before it happens. For all he foreknew, he predestined. To be what? 
to be believers in Christ. But he doesn't say that. Instead, instead he says, to be conformed to the image of his son. That when you see us, you'll see his son. How his son acted, how his son lived, how his son believed, how his son walked is the way we would walk. And we do that so his son would be firstborn or preeminent among everything. We do it for his glory. And those he predestined, he also, and now we're defining the call part, And those he called, he also justified. That, of course, is when God declares us innocent, declares us not guilty, declares us clean because of the blood of Christ. And those he justified, at some point in time in our life, he will glorify. But in God's terminology here, it's already happened. It's already assured. It's in the past tense. He, we are justified, E-D, and he also not will glorify, but has also glorified us. And we take this, and we take a number of other scriptures, and, and if you chain them all together, you'll be able to find that there really is a chain in salvation. There's these stages in salvation. We're not aware of that when we first get saved. All we're aware of is conversion. Well, I heard the gospel message, and I I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I asked the Lord to forgive me of my sins, and I placed faith in the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then I got saved, I'm now justified, and so we think salvation begins with our conversion of faith and repentance. And it's not until we grow in the Lord that instead of looking forward from where we are, justification, to where we'll someday be, glorification, and between that sanctification, living the Christ-like life, we have a tendency, the more we study Scripture, to look back and realize, wow, before I placed my faith in him, he chose me and he pulled me to himself. He predestined me. He foreknew me, the verses we just looked at. And if you place all those elements together, it looks like this. I shared this with you about six years ago. Ephesians chapter Uh, really the whole book of Ephesians, but especially chapter 1 and 2, talk a lot about election. God chose us before we chose him. And then, of course, there's this gospel call. You know, how will they hear unless they're sent with a preacher? And and we hear the gospel, which is the message of the gospel. And, And then there's regeneration. And this is the most important part. This is the supernatural part that God does in our heart and changes us from the inside out. And once we're regenerated, once the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, once, of course, we're different than all the other people in the world who the Scripture says none seek after God, you know, there's none that seeks after righteous, but you do and I do, and that's by act of regeneration, then we have what's called conversion. Then we place our faith because the gospel of Jesus Christ is no longer foolishness. It's no longer moronic. It's not stupid. It's not crazy. It actually makes sense to us. So we place our faith and repent of our sins, recognizing this holy God. And the only way we're able to do that is because this regeneration has taken place. And then when God moving in our life through regeneration is coupled with our response to that regeneration through conversion, then justification takes place where all of a sudden God declares us righteous, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us and our sin is imputed to him and it's just as if we never sinned. We have a right legal standing with God. When he sees us, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees the blood of his son. And we recognize and maybe even feel or experience this weight that comes off that we're saved and, and this is incredible and, and wow, I, just, I can't believe this has taken place. It's usually where we become aware of our salvation. There's some other things that happen. And some of these happen instantaneously like instantaneously with justification. Romans chapter 8 talks about the fact that we're adopted into his family, that now we're a child of God, a son of God, and if a son of God, an heir, and if an heir, a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just an incredible benefit that comes from that. And then from that point on, what do we do with this? How are we conformed to the image of Christ? How do we live? How do we manifest his life? And then when we have sanctification, which is the right conduct of life based on the God who lives within us, will we always do right things? No, but our nature now is to do those things that are godly rather than those things that are fleshly. And when we do things that are fleshly, it works against our nature, therefore it brings guilt. And, you know, Paul struggled with that. 
You know, what a wretched man that I am. The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. And it's this constant battle that takes place. This is where we grow in our faith. This is where we become more Christ-like. This is where we let his life live within us. This is where all the our responsibility kicks in. I will take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ because now I can. I will lay myself down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God because now I can. I will walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh because I can. It's where our choices come in through sanctification. This is when other people look at you and can tell that you're saved and changed because of sanctification. Something God does is God keeps us saved. He doesn't disown us as a child. You may find yourself backsliding, as they say. You may find yourself not interested in the things of God. You may find yourself at one point in time at 10 in your spiritual life, and now you're at two. And because you didn't measure up to at least a seven, God doesn't reject you as a son. He holds on to you. He perseveres through the end. So much so that Jesus said that I am holding on, and my Father is holding on, and my Father is greater than I, and it's like Jesus has us in his hand, and the Father has us both. Marvelous truth of Scripture. And death was actually a stage of salvation. It's when we leave this earthly body, and we go stand in the presence of the Lord, and of course, then we have glorification. Glorification is when we receive our resurrected bodies. And as for, according to Romans chapter 8, that's a past tense event in God's mind. These are the stages of um, salvation. It's very important that you understand this. Some of these things God does, and some of these things we do. God is the one that chooses us for no reason other than his good pleasure. We spend so much time talking about that. God is the one that supernaturally regenerates us. I mean, he supernaturally changes your nature. He doesn't make you better. He actually makes you different. That's the whole born again experience. He doesn't take the good things in me and says, you know, I'll just, I'll make you a little bit better here and train you to live in the flesh a little more godly. Instead, he puts me to death and you to death and raises us to a newness of life. That is something he does. And it's a radical transformation that takes place when the Holy Spirit comes, who's not fooling around, as A.W. Tozer says, and comes and dwells inside of you. Then there's justification. God chooses. God sees us. God sees the imputed righteousness of Christ in us. God says, I find that person no longer guilty. His debt is to telestai, paid in full. God then adopts us. And again, some of this stuff is instantaneous at the same time. God then not only sees us as, as sinners alienated from him, but now we're brought into a union with him by the sacrifice of his son. And he sees us not just as slaves and servants, but as children and sons and heirs and joint heirs, according to Romans chapter 8, which is unbelievable when you think about it. We're adopted into his family as a son. He's the one that makes sure that, that we stay saved and our salvation is not based on the whims of our emotion. I'm saved today, I'm not saved tomorrow. That that's, that's, that's means that his salvation is only as strong as you are. And the God I serve is much stronger than that. Death is something he determines. The Bible says that every day that you and I lived has been predetermined before we lived the very first one. And then when it comes to glorification, God is the one that lavishes us. As we looked at the video about the marriage supper of the Lamb, he lavishes us with these glorified bodies that will come back and rule and reign with him during the millennial reign for a thousand years. These are the things God does in our salvation. But there are some things that we do. We hear the gospel call. We are required to present the gospel call. For some reason, God chose not to have angels flying in mid-heaven, although he does that during the tribulation period. During mid-heaven, proclaiming the gospel message, he expects us to do that by sharing the love and the glory and the, the unique intimacy we have with Christ with others because it's so kinetic, it's so incredible, it's so wonderful that we just can't help telling other people about it unless it's not so kinetic. And it's not so wonderful. And we don't want other people to know about it because we have no joy in our relationship with him. 
Conversion is something that we do. Now, for the first time in our life, the gospel message makes sense to us. Now there's a change that's taking place inside of us. Now it's no longer moronic, the cross of Christ, to those who are perishing, because we're not perishing. We are being in the process here of being saved. Now all of a sudden, yes, I understand that. Yes, I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in the historical facts about him, but what he did for us. And yes, I repent of my sins. Sanctification is the major way we bring the Lord glory. Prior to this, you and I may do some good things, but that's not our nature. It works contrary to our nature. We're selfish. We're angry. We're bitter. We're unforgiving. We're always looking out for us. We call all the shots. We view reality based on what we want to do, and now we're changed. Now the Holy Spirit has come to live within us. Now we have the opportunity to to surrender our life to Christ and let him live in us. And that's how God gets glory today when we choose, choose to live a Holy Spirit-empowered life. To do contrary to that makes us hypocrites, grieves the Spirit. You know all of that. There are some things that we do, and there are some things that... He does. Here's the problem. Regeneration is an act of God. Justification is the conclusion of that where God says you are saved. And conversion comes in between. Conversion is emotional. Conversion is a choice. Conversion is something I decide to do. Conversion is something that we try to encourage everybody else to do because we don't know if regeneration is taking place, but if we can get somebody converted or go through the the sinner's prayer or something of that nature, then we're hoping maybe the justification takes place, but we're not going to know until salvation is either taking place and there's good fruit and right behavior or it hasn't. And the, the problem is, Many believers, Billy Graham once said that, um, you know, he, he believes that in a normal church setting on any Sunday, and again, he was talking about a Southern Baptist church at that time, he probably says less than 20% of the people are truly regenerated. They're almost all converted, but not regenerated. And conversion without genera- regeneration is not salvation. It doesn't lead to justification. There has to be a change on the inside. And that change is shown by now we're able to live a righteous life, a holy life, or our desire is to do that. Regeneration and conversion are the two key areas that Satan has deceived so many people. And it's what we're going to look at today. Regeneration, literally being born again, which is a sovereign act of God where he changes our nature by allowing the Holy Spirit to come in and live within us. The old man is now set aside. There's a new man inside of us. The new man still struggles with the flesh, but nevertheless, there's God himself living within us. It also involves our response to that, which is faith and repentance. But conversion does not come first. You are not regenerated by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because you have no faith to place in him unless it's given to you by him. Romans, first part of the book of Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one, including you, Steve. I know that. There is none that seeks after God, none that wants to do the right thing, none, including you, Steve. But I did. But I did. There was a point in time when I was one of those people, and then all of a sudden there was a point in time when I was 28 years old that I changed, and so what happened? Is the word wrong? It says none, but Billy Graham did, and I did, and the Apostle Paul did, but that happened not prior to the Damascus Road. It was after the Damascus Road. What happens? Regeneration. God's election. Regeneration comes and now gives you a desire and gives you a... C.S. Lewis called it this God-shaped vacuum that you have in your heart. He shows you how to fill that. Conversion does not come first. Conversion has to follow regeneration. Yet many today in the church have had a conversion experience. Yes, I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Really? So what's your spiritual life now? I don't know. 
I don't think about it that much. Uh, I remember when it happened, I felt really incredible, but I don't feel so incredible now. I was like a, I don't know, I guess a 10 that you talk about, but for the last 12 years, I'm just a five, and I'm okay with that. I don't do the things that I used to do. I mean, I do some of them, but not as much as I used to do. I, I've adopted a moral code. I, I go to church. I, you know, I do all the things that I'm supposed to do, but inside, there's, there's no vibrancy. There's no, there's no passion. There's no desire to share this love with others. Why? Because maybe it was a conversion experience rather than a true regeneration experience being totally born again. And this is where the foundation starts crumbling. I want to live by faith. But all you have is a conversion experience. It's like your flesh trying to muster up the faith and the desire. I'm going to follow God no matter what, and I can't. It's just, I just mess up, and I don't really care that I mess up, and I know I shouldn't be doing these things, and, and I made a commitment not to, but now I am, and it really doesn't matter because it's all based on me. Versus being inhabited by God himself who changes everything. Remember, Justification, clearly saved, a, adopted into his family. Justification. Prior to that is conversion and the re- re- regeneration. Without regeneration, there's no justification. But without ge- regeneration, there can be conversion. I asked the Lord to come into my life 200 times. 200 times. All I understood was conversion. I'm doing exactly what they say. All right, you need to ask Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. Lord, would you be the Lord of my life? You have to believe he died on a cross for your sins, and he was buried and raised on the third day, and he ascended into heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, and he's coming again in glory. Do you believe that? Yes, yes, I believe all of that. Well, then acknowledge that. Okay, and I've acknowledged that. And now I want you to uh, repent of your sins. Lord, I am so sorry for everything that I've done. And I was. And I walked away from that experience lost, converted. They told me I was saved, but I knew I wasn't. Nothing happened. It was like there's something missing here in this equation, and I don't know what it is. I'm doing all the things they told me to do, and yet I was doing them on my terms according to my rules, and and regeneration had never taken place. And when it did, and I've shared that with you so many times, when it did, everything changed. Ah, because God was involved. Then when I asked the Lord to forgive me of my sins, they were forgiven. And then when I acknowledged him as sovereign king and I asked him to be the Lord of my life, he became the Lord of my life because I willingly gave up what I had to him. See the difference? And then justification took place, not when I began praying at age 12, but when I began approaching him on his terms at age 28. Prior to that, I did all the church stuff. I was the youth pastor during Youth Sunday. I taught Sunday school. I even went to seminary. You know, I knew God wanted me to be a pastor. I just didn't even know who he was. I just knew what everybody else knew. It was like adopting some sort of code of ethics that I had a hard time living up to in the flesh. Impossible to live up into the flesh. And if I didn't live up into the flesh, so what? As long as everybody else doesn't know, it really doesn't matter because I have no Holy Spirit inside of me convicting me or being grieved by what I did. Ever. But what they teach you in seminary many times is that with good intentions, our focus is on getting people to say the sinner's prayer. If I could just get you to say the sinner's prayer. Come on down. All those would like to give their life to Christ that are convicted by this message. I see that hand. I see that hand. Come on down here and shake this old pastor's hand. And they come on down, and and I'm shaking their hand, and I ask them the same questions. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I do. Do you believe he died on the cross for your sins? I do. Are you, do you want to surrender your life to him? Yes, that's why I'm down here. Do you, do you repent of all your sins? Yes, I do. And then we say a prayer, and he recites those truths back to us, and we assume they're saved. And sometimes they are, and a lot of times they're not. You ever notice in church sometimes? Again, it doesn't happen here but my experience in Southern Baptist churches, about every six weeks you had the same people coming down to get saved again. 
and we try to tell them you can't get saved again, oh, then we're just going to rededicate our life again. That's like socially acceptable in the church setting. And, and the problem is that their, their faith is based on a conversion experience and not a regeneration experience where Christ comes in once and for all and turns them into a new person. But without regeneration, without that taking place, the converted individual is not saved. They may do really good things. When we lived in uh, Pigeon Forest, Tennessee, again, I've shared this story with you before. There was a, I was associate pastor of an independent fundamental Baptist church made up of some of the best people I've ever met in my life. And a pastor's wife was, you would say, was the hardest working Christian I'd ever seen. She went out soul winning like twice a week and she had Bible studies you know, that you'd meet with these old ladies and be in the nursing homes and you could not keep up with her. I mean, she was all about Jesus and, you know, just sharing her faith and all that kind of stuff. And, and I, I guess we were there for a, a number of years and um, it wasn't until she was in her late 60s that she got saved. What? What? I mean, Joan Settle wasn't saved. Nobody can be saved. But everything about her was conversion. It was, I, I, I believe, and I have trusted, and I'm repenting, and now I'm working. I'm just working as hard as I can. And there was so much good that came out of that, but it wasn't until she was a few years older than I am right now that all of a sudden regeneration took place, and she understood the joy, the, the intimacy, the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, how can that happen? Because that's what we preach, that's, that's all we know, is I don't know if salvation's taken place, but what I do know, if I can get you to say the prayer, then if it has taken place, we'll obviously see a changed life. But if we haven't, gosh, we'll have to start all over again and try it again. Know what I mean? If, if a supernatural change doesn't take place, which means someone who cusses either doesn't cuss anymore, or every time they do, they'd feel terribly convicted about that, and they change the way they think, because that, just, that, that doesn't honor anybody, that, that's a great sign. That's, a, that's, that's a, a, a change, and there's a multitude of changes that we all have to go through. But otherwise, they become what we affectionately called a baptized, unsaved church member, like my dad like so many people I've known over the years. They've joined the club, they pay their dues, they're faithful in attendance, they believe cognitively the facts, but there's no change in their nature at all. I mean, how does that happen? Well, if the Holy Spirit doesn't live within you, it is impossible to try to live the Christ-honoring, ethical, moral life long-term. I'll be honest with you, Mormons are far more moral and ethical than Christians are, and they don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. I mean, how many Christians at the height of their kid would train them as a young teenager that when they're 18 years old, they're going to devote two years of their life to mission work? Nobody. That's abuse. My kids got to go on to college. My kids got to make a lot of money. My kids will be two years behind everybody else if they do that. I mean, the fact is, it's, we don't even think that way, yet they do. I mean, conversion is one thing, and regeneration is totally another. A holy life, a life that pleases the Lord, a life that brings you up to a 10 or a 12 or a 14 in your spiritual life is not something you can do on your own. It's something that can only be accomplished by a holy God. Holy God living within you, a holy God empowering you. Well, I know I'm saved because why? Well, I said the prayer, and so therefore, obviously, the Holy Spirit came to live within me theologically, and my life is different. In what way? Well, you know, I used to do this, and now I don't anymore. And I used to do this. And we always talk about things that we don't do. Well, how about the things that we do? Do you have a joy for God's word? Do you love being around other people? 
Are you forgiving like Christ is forgiving? Do you show grace like has been shown unto you? When people come into, into your sphere of influence, do you model the spiritual gifts in your life of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and patience and all that kind of stuff? Or is it just, well, I don't watch this anymore and I quit watching that, so therefore I must be saved? It doesn't really work that way. Spiritual fruits are not necessarily things that are taken away from us. Spiritual fruits are things that are given to us, and we have so much spiritual fruit and so much foliage as it talks about in John 15. There's no time for the other things. And Jesus spoke about this in his very famous parable called the parable of the sower. I want you to, I want you to look at this. The difference between regeneration and the difference between conversion. It's in Matthew chapter 13. We're only going to look at a couple of these verses. First, of course, is the reason for the parable. And the reason for the parable is simple. Multitudes are following Christ. He's the hottest thing around. He's healed a bunch of people. He's done these amazing things. He, his mother and brother came up and he said, no, no, I don't even want to see them right now because anyone who does the will of my father, that's my mother and my brother and my family. And so people are just amazed by him. And so Jesus always did this. Every time he would draw a crowd, he would show people exactly how high the bar is. As soon as people started following him, he became really popular. Rather than going on all the talk shows, he would make statements like this. If you don't eat my flesh or drink my blood, you have no part of me. Oh, he must be talking metaphorically. My blood is real drink and my flesh is real meat. What are you saying? The rich young ruler comes to him, and, and he could join the entourage. He could become a disciple. He's got all this money. He could build the big building. He could really minister uh, with his wealth. I mean, it could be great. We'll make him in charge of the finance committee. We'll let him handle the finances rather than Judas. Bad choice. And instead, I've done all these things, Lord. I, I, what good things do I need to do? Sell everything that you have. Give to the poor. Come follow me, and you'll have treasures. No. His disciples' faces drop. I don't understand. Who can be saved then? With men, it's impossible. With God, it is possible. It's a different kingdom we're talking about. So Jesus begins this parable to pretty much thin his crowd or to keep those people who just wanted him to season their life from thinking that they truly had a relationship with him. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, great multitudes. So that he got in a boat and sat, and a whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying this, and you know the parable, behold, a sower went out to sow. So this is guy, and he's got this bag of seeds, and he has the same seeds, and he's going out, and he's just scattering them. He's not putting more in one place than another. He is evenly, without being a respecter of persons, just scattering the seeds. And as he sows, some fell by the wayside, by the path, like, the, like a golf cart path, and the birds came and devoured them. Okay, I'm a farmer. I can see that. I I don't really, I'm sowing seeds in my garden here. If I sow them in this parking lot or in the driveway, that's not going to plant, birds are going to get, I, I got that, makes sense. Some fell on stony places where, of course, they didn't have much earth, very little soil. And they immediately sprang up because there was no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. All right, so I sowed seeds in that seed, and there was this, this immediate growth, and then all of a sudden the elements came out, and it became July, and it withered away, and there was no fruit. Okay. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Important. Good ground yields a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty, and then Jesus makes this incredible statement, which is the most profound statement he ever made in Scripture. If you'll trace these down when he says these, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I am telling you something not meant for everyone. If the Holy Spirit opens your ears to the truth of what I'm telling you, you need to focus on that because it's meant specifically for you. So, Lord, what are we talking about here? Well, it's really simple. There are four types of soil. 
And the seed is spread on each of these soils. There's the path, the stony soil, the thorns, and the weeds, and there's the good soil. And all of these four soils, or in three of these four soils, some sort of growth takes place for a short amount of time. Just like it is with many people who profess Christ. You have some people who have no regeneration or no conversion in their life. You can present the gospel to them. They aren't interested. They don't care. They walk away from it. This last week, I had an opportunity to have a rather long discussion with, um, with someone about the gospel. And at the end of our long discussion, I could tell he was under conviction. And he simply said this, I can't. I can't. I, uh, I know I need to give my life to Christ but I'm not. And the reason why he was not is because he refused to let go of his life himself. And by the way, his life was in shambles. Okay, no conversion, no regeneration. He was lost when the seeds fell on him, when he heard the gospel message, and he was lost after that. Then there are some people where there's no regeneration that takes place, but there is a conversion. Yeah, I like that. That sounds good to me. I'm going to try that. Oh, yes. To have my sins forgiven by just believing someone? Uh, Yeah, like Moses lifting up the serpent. If I look at that, I get healed. Okay, that sounds great to me. And then, of course, there's those people that have both regeneration and conversion where true salvation takes place, where there's a changed life, and the changed life is evidenced by the producing of fruit. And we have four soils here. The guy on the path in the wayside, nothing happens there. The seeds are falling. The ground is too hard. The heart is too hard. There's a rejection. Nobody's interested. The birds come. They they eat up the seeds. We all recognize that. But the shallow soil and the thorns and weeds produced some sort of change temporarily. Some sort of, yeah, I'll go along with that. Tell me what I need to do. Well, you need to read your Bible. Start with the book of John. Okay, Three weeks later, have you got through John yet? I got like chapter eight and it just got, I got busy. And okay. But only the fourth one, you know this, the fourth soil produces a crop. And only the fourth soil had both regeneration and conversion. Well, that's not what my preacher told me. Nah, me neither. But that's what Christ is telling you. This is the parable for those people who have ears to hear. He then explains this parable. He doesn't explain a lot of them. He explains this one, and then he explains about tares uh, sown within the church. But the rest of the parables, he doesn't pretty much explain. We have to understand those as people who have ears to hear. But so there's no confusion. He clearly explains this parable to them. Here is the one that has no regeneration, no conversion. A guy that hears this gospel message, rejects the gospel message, and walks on his way unsaved. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower, the explanation. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, comprehend it, or accept it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. This is he who receives the seed by the wayside. There is no gospel of the kingdom, there is no seed, there is no life, there's no regeneration, no conversion, got that. You and I maybe were like this at one time, and then we heard the gospel message, and then we either become like this, where there is no regeneration, but there is a conversion, or there's a regeneration and a conversion. And the only way to tell the difference between those two is by fruit, by fruit, by the life of sanctification. No regeneration, but conversion only. But he received the seed in the stony places. This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yes, yes, I want to get saved. I came down to the front of the church. I even cried. It was so emotional for me. I felt my heart fluttering, and and I realized that I wanted to give my life to Christ, and it was fantastic. Yet he has no root in himself. Shallow soil flourishes just for a moment, endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, well, you don't think when Christ comes to live within you, you have an enemy? (laughs) That's what I was telling this young man that I was talking to uh, this week. I said, look, you think your life is bad now? Let me tell you what's going to happen if you truly give your life to Christ. I mean, Satan has left you alone. 
Because pretty much you're screwing up your life so bad right now, he doesn't have to do anything to keep you away from Christ. But when you reject his working in your life and your flesh and decide that you want to embrace Christ, you got this bullseye on your chest and this archangel fallen Satan and his demons are going to do everything they can to whack you. Well, what do I do? Well, you have all these promises in Scripture, you have spiritual armor to put on. It's a battle. It's not a, your best life now. It's, it's a battle that you go through. Now, how do I know if I'm really saved? You'll still be standing at the end. You'll still be there. You're still enlisted. You haven't compromised. You haven't capitulated. You haven't gone back to the old way that didn't work, that supposedly Christ redeemed you from. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. The word there means he falls away. He quits. He doesn't want to do it anymore. Okay. Conversion, never last. Regeneration is the only thing that holds you to Christ with a changed nature. This particular one, no regeneration, but a conversion. We see the same thing in the third soil. Now, he received the seed among the thorns. Is he who hears the word? Sounds great. I want to embrace that. I want my best life now. I want the Lord to, to give me everything I want. I've got this genie bottle called Jesus, and I just rub it three times, and Jesus comes out, and I make my wishes to him because the Bible says I can ask him anything that, that uh, I want, and he'll grant that. Okay, I want like a new car. I, I want everything to go my way. I want it always to be about me. But the cares of this world, the cares that Jesus says, if you're a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word like weeds, and he becomes unfruitful. Regeneration? No. Just conversion. And then the last one, the only one that is saved, where they have regeneration takes place and then conversion takes place where they're cooperating with this changed nature to truly surrender their life to the Lord. But he receives the seed on good ground as he who hears the word and understands it, the magnitude of it. And indeed, he bears fruit because that's the key. I'm bearing fruit and produces some hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. So we have four soils. One, of course, no regeneration, no conversion, no nothing. We recognize that person is lost. He's still lost, not interested in Christ. We got that. We're still going to give him the gospel call. Then we have the fourth one, of course, which is genuinely saved. We see the spiritual fruits in their life. We see the love and joy and peace and long-suffering and grace and mercy and, and this changed nature and this smile they have, even in the middle of, of tough times, that they've surrendered their life to Christ, and they know it, and we know it, because the Holy Spirit is just oozing out of them, and it makes Christ seem so compelling because of that. And then we have the vast majority of people in church, maybe some of you, who, yeah, I, I asked him into my life, and I believe all those things, but, you know, I got a job to do, I got money to do, I got, you know, I don't want to be so heavenly minded, I'm so no earthly good anymore, I, I, I suffer persecution, I, I keep that light up, up under a bushel on a table so nobody else can see it, I'm not the salt of anything right now. And we look at the fruit, and if the fruit's not there, growing in Christ-likeness, it makes us wonder. That's why Jesus defined this parable. So two questions. Question number one, how can we know the difference between regeneration and conversion? I mean, how do we know? What's really simple. We know by the change that takes place in us. And I won't bother reading the, the passages prior to that, but it talks about a good tree and a bad tree, and a good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruits, and by your fruits you will know them. It's talking about false prophets. Christians act like Christians. Lost people act like lost people. Dogs act like dogs. Cats act like cats. And if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. True? That's how we know. That's how we know. How do you know I'm saved? I don't. How do you know I'm saved? You don't. If you knew me before and you knew me now, like Karen has, you could say, oh, I can see a huge change. You don't. It's based on my nature. It's based on 
my spiritual fruits in my life. If I'm saved, I will act saved. If I'm not saved, I won't act saved. I mean, that's just what it is. And we're not talking about just seasons of messing up. We're talking about this long-term commitment to something other than Christ. Make sense? Classic passage that ends that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not verbal. I tried the verbal thing from the age 12 to age 28. But it's he who does the will of my Father. It's active faith, not passive faith. Many, he says, will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and what's here is stuff that you and I haven't even done. I mean, these people seem like they're sold out to Christ. We prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. Have you done that? We've done many wonders, miracles in your name. Many of us haven't even done any of that. These guys would seem on the surface as being these over-the-top believers. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Skinosko, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice habitually from a non-saved, changed nature, lawlessness. Remember, justification first, then sanctification that proves justification. Always works that way. Question number two, last question. So what is the difference between regeneration and conversion? I mean, both of them involve faith. But yeah, it's the object of faith. It's it's the difference between saving faith and non-saving faith. I have faith that this chair will hold me up. I have so much faith that I actually sat down in it after gaining probably five pounds this week at the beach. And I sat down in this chair, and you know what? My faith was verified because the object of my faith was the strength of this chair, and I acted upon that, and it held me up. That's faith, is it not? It's not saving faith. It's just faith. I'm going to get in a car, and I'm going to go to Clover today, and we're going through several stop signs and a couple stoplights, and I have faith that when it says green, those guys will stop. And so I drive through that with faith, and that's faith. We all exercise faith, but that's not saving faith. Everybody, an atheist, exercises faith, but it's the object of that faith that matters, and whether or not that faith is passive, that we talked about two weeks ago, or we're actually putting our lives and moving forward and living in that faith. Tuesday night, um, I knew I would not have time today. Tuesday night, I'm going to be talking about the difference between saving faith and non-saving faith. Um, And I really suggest you come because I can't think of a more important question to address, especially as our society is moving to the point where we're going to have to rely on our faith, whether or not your faith is uh, saving or non-saving faith or whether the faith of your family members or your spouse or your children is saving faith or non-saving faith. We're going to go into great detail about that on Tuesday, so I'm not going to do that here. And the other thing we're going to do is I'm going to, I'm just going to, in just the last few minutes, I'm just going to give you these 12 points that talk about a test that you can take to determine, based on what your answers are, whether or not you think your faith is saving faith or non-saving faith. And all of these are from the book of 1 John. Paul tells us, no matter who you are, that we need to examine ourselves. I mean, periodically, examine yourself. As to what? As to whether you're in the faith. How do I do that? Well, you give yourself a test. You test yourself. You look at what the Scripture says a Christian is supposed to be, and then you test yourself according to that standard. That's a finite standard. It's a standard that he lays out. It's not our standard. Test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you don't know that and you find yourself disqualified. And the word, New King James uses the word disqualified. The word literally means you're a reprobate. You're one that is not approved or you're one that fails the test. So we are commanded what I'm going to encourage you to do yourself tonight, and then we're going to do this in more detail on Tuesday. Ask yourself some questions. And we're not going to make these questions up ourselves. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of 1 John, who was written for one purpose only. And that purpose is found in 1 John 5.13, so that you will know whether or not you have eternal life. These things, five or four and a half chapters, 
He's already written. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Well, I believe in the name of the Son of God, yes, that you will know that you have eternal life. Well, is there a difference between believing in the name of the Son of God and knowing I have eternal life? Yes, it's a difference between conversion and regeneration. It's the difference between having a head knowledge and a heart knowledge of Christ. So I've written this to you, these entire book here, everything up to this point, I've written it to you for one reason, that you will know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I am only going to list these for you, and we're going to be dealing with each of these in detail on Tuesday. Here's the simple question, the simple test we have from First uh, John. Ask yourself these questions. Do these apply to you? Do you enjoy having fellowship with Christ and his redeemed people? Kind of. Sometimes they're doing something I want to do. You know, I don't mind going out to a meal with them if they're eating something that I want to eat. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't really talk to anybody at church. I really just hurry up, go home, and, and just, you know, hide up under my bed because I don't really like people that much. And, and do I enjoy having fellowship with Christ? I mean, is it a high point of my day to spend time with him? We'll talk more about that on Tuesday. Would people say that you walk in the light, or would people say that you walk in the darkness? Can others see Christ in you? 1 John 1, 6 through 7. Do you admit and confess your sins? And when you confess your sins, do you go back to those sins, or do you confess those sins and they're done? 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Are you obedient to God's word? Yeah, the part that I like, the part that I don't like, no, I'm, I just I don't have time for that right now because I'm too busy making my way in the world. Does your life indicate that you love God rather than this world? Or do you spend most of your time in the things of the world? I talked about this a couple weeks ago in the men's class. We don't have time to read the scriptures. Hey, uh, where was your Bible study at this week? Well, you know, I, I looked at Philippians, like the first chapter for, you know, uh, the 20 minutes, but it's been a busy week and, and I have a lot of things to do and I just didn't have time for that. Hey, I understand that you're studying for the, I'll use Violet, for example, for the CPA exam. Violet, when you study for the CPA exam, how much time do you spend studying? Yeah, probably not enough. You never do it enough. Hey, I'm getting ready to take this exam. Hey, I've got these, these terms in college. Hey, my teacher gave me homework, so I can't do anything. He's got three hours of homework. And things we want to do, we do. But when it comes to studying God's word, it seems like we take everything else and exalt it because we think it's more important to us than this. So does your life indicate that you love God rather than the world? Is your life characterized by just doing what is right? I don't care what other people say. I am going to do what is right. 1 John 2.29, you need to look it up. Do you seek to maintain a pure life? No, I seek to feel more comfortable in the gray area. We're heading in the wrong direction. Do you see a decreasing pattern of a sin in your life? Or is the sin in your life the same or increasing? Are you doing things now that you would never have done two weeks after you got saved? We're heading in the wrong direction. Conversion versus regeneration. Do you demonstrate a love for other Christians? Do you walk the walk or just talk the talk? That's 1 John 3, 18 and 19. Do you maintain a clear conscience? Or do you know in the back of your mind, this is wrong, I shouldn't be doing this, you know, I don't want to pray about it, God, because I'm just going to pretend, I'm just going to try to shut that voice of the Holy Spirit out of my mind. Do you experience victory in your Christian walk? Or are you always defeated? Remember, every one of these in 1 John deals with sanctification. Every single one of them. It's all manifested by what we do after we're regenerated. If we're regenerated and we're living this kind of life, this test that John lays out for us in 1 John, hallelujah. But if we claim to be regenerated, but then can't answer the biblical way in most of these, it may be, like it was for me for so many years, that you've experienced conversion and not regeneration which puts you in a horrible place, especially as we see that day approaching. 
Final questions, and I'll close with this. Do you possess saving or non-saving faith? I don't know. Then you need to uh, come Tuesday so we can find out. Because all the other things, and I apologize to you, I should have had this message months ago to make sure we're all on the same foundation. And then we can talk about what it means to walk in the Spirit and live by the Spirit and have this kind of faith prepper mentality. And if you claim to have saving faith, questions I had to ask myself this week, how do you know? How do you know? Is it based on some esoteric experience? No, I remember that day. I remember I, 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 I just felt these warm little tingle marks on my arms and, and I even cried and, and, and I read my Bible like, like really intense like for the first two weeks. All right, that was 17 years ago. Tell me how your spiritual life has grown since then because that obviously was a 10. Most you'd ever known Christ at that time when you're first introduced to him. Are you there? Have you surpassed that? Or have you, well, I'm just a six. So we haven't even grown in 17 years to the equivalent of what it was like spiritually when we first came to Christ. How is that possible for someone that has the Holy Spirit living in them? How do you know? Does your wife know? Can your husband tell? Do your kids look at you and say, ah, my mom, my dad, that's a God-fearing woman, that's a God-fearing man, I want to be just like them when I get that age. Do your friends and neighbors know? Or, or they can't tell much of a difference between you and everybody else. Can they tell that you in your life that you no longer belongs to you, but it actually belongs to the Lord? Or does your life sometimes reflect Christ and sometimes not reflect Christ? I reflect Christ on Sunday and when I go to parties with my church friends, but when I have all my other friends, it doesn't reflect Christ at all because I want to be like the crowd. And if that's your experience, do you know what Jesus says about a life like that? Do you remember Revelation chapter 3? Let me close by reading it to you. And by the way, this door that he's talking about knocking on, it is the door of the church, the area in which we live. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. This is the church age in which we live. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things say the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. We're back to fruits again. has nothing to do with, with professions of faith, mental understanding in a sense. I know your works, that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. I wish that you were for me or against me. So then because you were lukewarm, kind of stand for nothing, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. Why? Because you say, hey, I am rich, I become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. I don't need you, Christ. I don't need, I don't need the Holy Spirit. I'm doing just fine by myself. And you do not know, from God's perspective, that you were wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The day is coming very quickly when it will cost you something to be a Christian. I really expect in the next week or two, John MacArthur to be thrown in jail. And not only John MacArthur, there are churches now that are being fined up to $5,000 a day just for staying open. And $10,000 every time they have a worship service like that. And if the churches continues to pay, there's no guarantee the Supreme Court, especially with John Roberts right now, flip-flopping back and forth, that they'll probably uphold these things. And you'll find that that pastors will start going to jail. It will start costing you something to come to church. To walk in that door meant that somebody may put your name on a list. And with your name on a list, they may try to punish you through your job or something of that nature. I mean, the day is going to come, it's promised us, when you may have to stand before a judge and convince him that your life manifests enough spirit that they can actually convict you of being a Christian. The day's here. This is Nazi Germany, 1938 right now. And we're all Jews. What are we going to do? What are you going to do? Just rock on like, like everything's the same? And I would love to. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't relish what's coming, but you, 
You have to really be in a state of denial to look around at what's going on in our nation, especially regarding the church, and realize that you know, protesters have a, have a constitutional right, which they don't, to protest. But you and I don't to worship. John MacArthur is 81 years old. And you know, when they put him in jail, half the churches in America are going to condemn him because his stance is going to make their conversion life seem more difficult. We have to build the foundation. We have to learn to live by faith because the time of just ease and taking things like it's always been is rapidly coming to an end. Can you not see that by just looking around? Can you not feel the demonic presence in your spirit almost everywhere you go? It's crazy what's happening right now. It's a wonderful time to be a believer that's regenerated. It is a horrible time to be someone who is just converted. Amen? Let me pray.